0: But we find ourselves this morning in Revelation chapter 17, if you'd like to turn there. I heard a story of a little boy who loved visiting his grandparents' home, and one of the reasons he loved going there was because his grandfather had this beautiful antique uh, grandfather clock in their home. And his favorite time of the day was, of course, 12 noon or midnight, Because the clock would chime, of course, 12 times in each case. But one afternoon when he was playing in the living room of his grandparents' home, something happened to malfunction in the clock. And instead of the clock stopping at the 12th strike, it went on to the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th. The little boy came running into the kitchen to find his grandparents and said, Grandma and Grandpa, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of scared because it's later now than it ever has been before. As we come to Revelation chapter 17, it is later now than it has ever been before. And today we come to one of the most interesting, I think, chapters of the entire book of Revelation, and that's saying a lot. For there is so much of fascinating segments of this particular book. To lift this chapter above all is really saying something. But it also has posed the greatest challenge in its interpretation. Even though we will find that the description of the illustration and the vision in which John saw is then uh, described and meaning given by the angel who shows him, there is still ambiguity concerning how it actually is fulfilled in real life. So as we go through it this morning, we are going to look at it from the perspective of history, we're going to look at it from the day that John wrote it, and we're going to look at it at how it pertains to the very last days before the return of Jesus Christ. So a tall order. I hope to get you out of here by four o'clock. So if you have any plans, cancel them. The late Adrian Rogers wrote a book on the book of Revelation, and he wrote this, I believe that the shadows of the end of the age are lengthening. The sands of time are running low, and we are standing at the threshold of the second coming of Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church. Many avoid the book of Revelation thinking that we cannot understand it. That it's too difficult. Some today believe that the book of Revelation is too scary. And it causes them to consider things that they frankly just don't want to consider. But the book of Revelation is not about concealment. The title says it itself. It's about revealing. The entire book of Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ and his second coming Physical second coming to this earth. We here at Calvary believe the events of Revelation chapter 6 through 19 are still yet future. They will ter- take place in a period of time that the Bible calls the tribulation period, a seven year period of time that is initially given to us in Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 26. This seven year period of time, at the halfway mark, something significant will happen. And the last three and a half years of that seven-year tribu- uh, seven tribulation period is known as the Great Tribulation. It is this period of time that we are now looking at together. It is this period of time that John is giving us further details concerning events that will take place in that period of time. And today we are uh, given and introduced to what is known as Mystery Babylon, the title of my message today. Mystery Babylon. And in verse 1 of chapter 17, "...then one of the seven angels who who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgments of the great heartlet who sits on many waters." with whom the kings of the earth commit fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious Silver uh, stones and pearls, having her hand in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filth- filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abomination of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So pretty clear what this means. Pretty straightforward. As John now is taken by one of the angels that poured out one of the seven bowls in Revelation 16, he is now brought to an excluded place, secluded, I should say, place where he's given this vision of this great harlot sitting on top of a beast with seven heads and ten horns. Now I think that at this point we can say that much of this uh, imagery has already been defined for us prior to coming to this point. But for clarity let us continue To see that the purpose of John given this vision is the realization that this harlot sitting on top of this beast is now going to be judged by God Himself. Now, there are many who speculate on the identity of the harlot, the meaning of the seven heads, and also the ten crowns, uh, horns, excuse me, that are mentioned here. But I think it is clear that when we look back into history, what John is indicating to us, how he defines these things, and what it means for us going forward. For example, let us look at what we know just from the two first verses, verses 1 and 2. The identity of this beast isn't given at this point, so what do we know so far? Number one, the harlot is about to be judged. Number two, she's seated on many waters. Number three, the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her. And the, number four, the dwellers of the earth have become drunk with her wine. Well, that gives us a little bit more clarity, but it doesn't give us specifics. The book of Revelation is often misinterpreted. It's misinterpreted because often instead of looking into history and trying to understand what John was going to communicate or desire to communicate at the time of his writing of this letter in 95 AD on the island of Patmos after he had been exiled by the Roman emperor Domitian, many then begin to speculate what John is writing and come to conclusions that are fascinating and make for good YouTube videos, but are biblically inaccurate. But we see here in verse 6 that he marveled with great amazement, meaning that John initially didn't understand what he was looking at either. He was given this vision, and you can imagine the various artists who have tried to render these these images, you know, I think of William Blake and some of his famous paintings. Of course, the one of the red dragon itself. But notice that the angel says to him in verse 7 Why do you marvel? <laughs> you know, I'm glad the angels have it all sorted out, right? I-, I love in the gospels when Jesus gives a parable, and I just picture all of the disciples after the parable has been given. Shaking their heads in agreement with one another. Oh, how profound that is, you know. Oh, Jesus, you're just so wise. What did he mean by that? I have no clue, but I'm glad he said it, you know. They were clueless, often they were clueless at what Jesus was referring to in the parables that he gave. John here, this amazement is shock, it is awe, it is confusion, He's contemplating everything that he had just seen, and now the angel tries to make sense of it for him and help him understand why he has been given this vision. I will tell you, the angel says, the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Now the first time that we are given indication of this beast is back in Revelation chapter 13. Where there it symbolizes Satan himself. But here it is described a little differently. The difference is, is that after the event of the midway point of the seven-year tribulation period of time, we know that the Antichrist himself will appear to have been killed, he will appear to be mortally wounded, and then he will appear to come back to life again. The Bible tells us it is at that point that the Antichrist is filled with Satan himself. The beast here represents the Antichrist filled with Satan. And that is the reason for this description. Now we all know that this description is very similar to that of Jesus Christ. If we think of Revelation chapter 1 verses 17 through 18, should be on the screen behind me, and when I saw him, this is John, I fell at his feet dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying to me, do not be afraid, I am the first to the last, I am he who lives and was dead and behold I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. Now, this is Jesus Christ. The Antichrist, when we talk about anti, the word anti, we're not simply talking about one who is the opposite of, but the word in Greek can also mean one in place of, the original or the authentic one. The Antichrist will demand to be worshiped, He will counterfeit the things of Jesus from signs and wonders. The false prophet that we read in Revelation chapter 13 will make an image of him appear to become alive, the Bible says, to deceive many. We know that he will uh, counterfeit this death and resurrection. In Revelation 13, the one who is mortally wounded and comes back to life which reminds me again, and I, ha- I can't say this often enough, but it reminds me again that Satan is not a creator. He's a counterfeiter. God is the ultimate creator. Satan simply counterfeits what God has already created. So the Antichrist here is clearly the beast. Now, the angel goes on, and notice with me, that the description of the Antichrist, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit, but un- unlike Jesus, who lives forever and ever, ultimately will go to perdition. Hell. And we know the ending result, The end result for the Antichrist, the false prophet and Satan, is a banishment to the lake of fire forever and ever. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel. "...whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundations of the world, when they see the beast that was, is not, and yet is. The ones that will be deceived at this point in time will be ones who are not believers in Jesus Christ." Those whose names have not been found written in the book of life before the foundations of the world. One of the conversations that many Christians love to discuss is the foreknowledge, predestination, and election of God's people. If you have Calvinistic friends, they look at it from a Calvinistic perspective. If you have Arminianist friends, they look at it from an Arminianist perspective perspective. In 30 years of studying God's Word, I cannot consider myself a classic Calvinist, nor can I consider myself a classic Arminianist. I call myself a biblicalist, (laughs) a word I've made up, of course, because I don't understand. I believe that God has predestined us. I believe God has known us from before the foundations of the world. I believe that God has chosen us. But the Bible also teaches the free will of man, whoever so comes to the Lord, whomever comes to the Lord. So we cannot completely erase the responsibilities of man and his free will, and we cannot simply erase the sovereignty of God, which I believe. Both positions do either intentionally or unintentionally. But here's the truth God knew that you were going to be His. Your name was written in the book of life from the foundations of the world. And as a result, you were then predestined and chosen for salvation. I love the way D.L. Moody put it. He was one of my heroes, as many of you know. He says it's like walking along and finding a door that says, whoever shall come to me, I by no means shall cast out. And then walking through that door, closing the door, and then on the opposite side of it, see these words, chosen from the foundations of the world. He went on to say in that same message, As he closed in prayer, he said, God, save the elect and elect some more. But here's the deal. God knew us before the foundations of the world. He saved us. He chose us. And he also set for us works for us to do to fulfill the plans and purposes that he has for us. When we come to Ephesians 2 8 and 9, those two verses are often memorized by the youngest of Sunday school children. For by grace you have been saved by faith and that not of works. We all know those verses. In the Greek, though, verse 10 should be included in those verses. And it states very clearly that he has put us forward. That we are his workmanship to fulfill good works. 8 and 9 tells us how we are saved. And verse 10 tells us why we are saved. So the individuals here are individuals who have rejected Jesus Christ. And they will be enamored with the Antichrist. Who is filled with Satan himself. And they shall be deceived. As Jesus told us, you know, wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many shall travel it, but narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few will find it. But then the angel continues on in verse 9, here is the mind which has wisdom. So now he is asking his readers at that time to consider what he is writing. He says here, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Rome is known as the city in seven hills. And I have no doubt that that's exactly what he meant at this point. He was speaking about the current Roman Empire. The city of Rome being the epicenter of that empire. And he he is stating here that the woman at that time resides and is what we would consider located, but I use that term loosely, uh, derives from, would be a better way of saying it, the city of Rome. He then goes on to say, there are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. Now, it appears that he is speaking of the various Roman emperors that have existed. The one during John's time at this time is the one who exiled him to Patmos, who is Domitian. He's speaking of the five emperors that preceded Domitian. And he's also prophesying the one that will come after, whose name was Emperor Nerva, N-E-R-V-A, who was only emperor for two years. For two years. But it doesn't stop there. Then he says... There are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, that is Domitian, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue for a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth. He is now saying that one will follow all of these in the last empire, that will control the entire world. And the eighth emperor, the one he is speaking of here, is none other than the Antichrist himself. If you go back to the book of Daniel, you'll realize that when Nebuchadnezzar was given the vision of the statue and the two legs of iron represented the Roman Empire, when you proceeded down to the feet of that statue, the toes were ten toes of iron mixed with clay specifying that at the time of Jesus Christ's arrival, and that, of course, is demonstrated in Daniel's, uh, in the book of Daniel, by a stone that hits the statue and destroys it all, those ten nations will be ten nations that come together in the last days that the Antichrist will rise out of from obscurity, the Bible tells us. He will kill off three of the kings And he then himself will take charge and lead the last confederate of nations, the last empire that the world will ever see prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what John is indicating here. But we still have not yet specified what the harlot herself represents. We're just given some context to look at as we go through these various verses. In verse 12, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as of yet. They are still yet to come. This is in congruence with the vision of Daniel and also earlier on in the book of Revelation. They will, but they will receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. This last world empire, led by the Antichrist, ultimately will be led by Satan himself. When we think of this world, we often look at it in the, as a globe, of course, which we should, and... As we look at it, we see various nations, we see various cities, various kingdoms around the world, but when we look at the world through the lens of the Bible, truly there are only two kingdoms to be discovered. One, of course, is the kingdom of our God, the kingdom of God. The second, of course, is the kingdom of the ruler of this world, who is none other than Satan himself. There are only two kingdoms. During the time of the tribulation period, the Bible is clear that this last empire will be led by the Antichrist, who at this point is filled with Satan himself, and will lead the world into an absolute time of catastrophe, of devastation, of deception, calling for the allegiance of all of the citizens of the world by pledging themselves to him in the form of taking a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, and without it they cannot buy and sell. One author once wrote that the table of tyranny is supported by four legs. The first is the leg of politics. The second is the leg of economics. The third is the leg of military. The fourth is the leg of religion. And as we continue on here, in verse 14, these will make war with the lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them, for He is the Lord of hosts, I'm sorry, Lord of lords, and the King of kings, and those who are with them are called chosen and faithful. Then He said to me, the waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples, multiple, um, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So it will be a global occurrence. The word sea or the description of sea or the illustration of sea in the book of Revelation refers to populations. The land represented, the, of course, the nation of Israel. The sea represented the Gentile world. We talked about that earlier in the book of Revelation. The whole world will follow the Antichrist into this moment. Now, we know from Revelation 16 and Revelation 19 that the last gathering of the Antichrist will be in the Valley of Megiddo, in the Battle of Armageddon, where he will take his military forces into this region, be confronted by the kings of the east, which we talked about last week, and also he will be met with the return of Jesus Christ at that moment, where the Lord will consume him with the word of God proceeding from his mouth. But I don't want to get too far ahead of us because we, I, uh, we still have not yet identified the harlot. And then he said to me, verse 15, "...the waters which you saw where the, where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues, and the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate... And naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Okay, this can't be good. They're going to turn on the harlots. They're going to turn on the Antichrist. These nations that were following him up until this point. But again, we still not, have not identified the harlot. In verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purposes, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Verse 17 tells us what? It tells us no matter the chaos that is going on before us, God is always in control. Everything that we see happening is fulfilling His purposes. And yet, from my perspective, I often don't understand it. I'm confused by it. Sometimes I'm discouraged. Sometimes I say, God, I I don't know what you're doing. I don't get it. How does this all fit together? But often God doesn't answer those prayers. He says simply, trust me. And here again, John is telling his original readers that in light of all that I have just described, God is in control and everything is being fulfilled according to his purposes. This is his plan. He is sovereign in his position. Nothing will deter his plan. The oldest book of the Bible, Job in the limited theological understanding that Job had of God, still realized that nothing that man does can ever confound the things of God. So if you sit back and you're in your home and you're watching the news and you're angry and frustrated and discouraged, first of all, know that you're not alone. If you call me and I'm watching the same thing, I'm probably angry and discouraged and frustrated just like you are. But I have to remember that nothing is happen chance. God is in control of everything. And ultimately, his perfect plan will be availed. And nothing is going to stop that. And John here is giving us that in verse 17. In verse 18, and the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Well, that clears up that, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. So who is the harlot? And what does she represent? Our first indication of her identity is given to us in the name, in which is written on her forehead. Mystery. Mystery. Babylon the Great. There are various methods of approaching Scripture to understand the development of a doctrine, or the development of a word, or the development of an object within the Bible. It is called biblical theology. It is taking from Genesis, taking that word, that person, that object, and seeing how the Bible develops it through the scriptures to give us the ultimate understanding and meaning of what God wants us to obtain from that word. Believe it or not, in the New Testament, Peter used the word Babylon, a city that at that time was of no avail. It was of no real value. The Roman Empire was clearly the Uh, uh, empire, empire in charge at that time but he was using the word Babylon synonymously for the word Rome so what does Rome represent that would connect itself to Babylon well this takes us now back into the Bible into the book of Genesis to Genesis chapter 11 turn there with me Genesis chapter 11, and we're going to go through the entire Bible, Genesis 11, to the very end this morning. Of course, we come now to the Tower of Babel, and we need to understand what this tower represented if we are going to truly understand why this word is being used in the book of Revelation. Remember when we began this study, I told everyone that the Old Testament is the key to understanding the book of Revelation. It is like a key or a legend on a map. It helps us identify the various words and why they are used in the book by John at the time that he wrote it. Now, Rome is seen as Babylon by Peter. Why is that? What did that represent to the Jewish people? Why was Peter um, viewing Rome as Babylon? Well, it all starts here. It all starts here in chapter 11 of the book of Genesis. And the tower of Babel. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, and they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had bricks for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come on, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose tops is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. God had clearly told this, the, his, the people to scatter and to spread across the whole world. But they chose not to. Demonstration of free will. They chose not to. Instead, they stayed together and they erected this tower, the Tower of Babel, in the location of Shinar, where the city of Babylon would eventually arise from. And in their endeavor to do so, they are clearly disobeying God. And there are a couple elements of the tower and of their attitude that we need to look at to help us understand what is transpiring back in Revelation 17. First of all, the tower itself was built very high. One archaeologist actually stated that looking at the Hebrew language, the bricks in which they made and the method in which they made them would be equivalent to what's called a bitruderim. It's a strange word. But do you know why this is so important to understand? Bit ruderum is a material that is waterproof. Now, why would you make a tower that is waterproof? Because you never want to be subjected to the flood of God again. They made it tall, they made it towards heaven. Because they too wanted to endeavor to reach God. Of course. From the very beginning, Satan told Eve that the moment you eat of the tree of good and evil, you too will be like God. That was their endeavor. They wanted to stay together because unified they believed that they were stronger than if they were scattered and separated. All of this was in defiance to the orders of God in a very simplistic way. God, you're not going to judge us again. God, we are going to raise ourselves up to be equal with you. And in and through all of this, we have the beginning of secular humanism. We have the beginning, the foundations being laid, that man, him or herself, too, can be like God. So the city of Babylon, which you know, eventually derived from the Tower of Babel was man's first attempt at creating his own religion, allowing himself to be equal with God. One of the four legs of the table of tyranny is religion. And of course... After the Tower of Babel came the city of Babylon. And what city, what empire was the first of the statue that Daniel interpreted for Nebuchadnezzar there in the captivity in what city? Babylon. Babylon was the beginning of the oppression of the Jewish people. And as a result, it is those various empires that are listed for us, from Babylon to the Medes and Persians to the Greeks to the Romans, and then to the final ten nations under the leadership of the Antichrist that will persecute and oppress the Jewish people. And at the very end of it all, in the valley of Megiddo, We have the return of Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. The harlot sitting on the beast is the culmination not only of an empire, but the religion in which they espouse. The religion that they push forward. Humanistic. A religion of works. A religion of self-righteousness a religion of self. We could get into this even deeper when we look at the wife of Nimrod and their child, which was miraculously, supposedly conceived. The child born was named Tammuz, and Tammuz was the roots of the god Baal in the Old Testament. All of this comes to the culmination in the beast, the harlot on top of the beast, who causes all the world to drink of her fornication. We are not simply talking about sexual fornication here, we're talking about spiritual fornication. If you want to understand spiritual fornication and why the Bible addresses uh, uh, people in James as adulterers and adulteresses, you need to read the book of Hosea to help you understand man's um, unfaithfulness to God. Some specify that the harlot represents one particular religion. But if you trace it back through the Bible, I believe it is the foundational attributes of any religious uh, organization or ideology that makes a way possible to God apart from Jesus Christ. For Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So when we talk about Babylon, it is synonymous, just like as we were to say, those on Wall Street, and we're talking about the financial sector, or those on Madison Avenue, we're talking about the marketing and the advertising sector, we're using it synonymously to represent that this this harlot is the world religious system that is governed by the Antichrist in whatever form it takes. Ultimately, he will demand that he is the deity, he himself. But up until that point, he allows for the various attributes and the various understandings to exist but in each and every case it is man's attempt to reach god apart from god reaching down to us this the harlot is this false religion and jesus christ ultimately will bring it to an end now he did on the cross 2000 years ago as he hung there, he showed the world that he was the perfect sacrifice that the Father from the foundations of the world had set forward, as prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to smash the head of the serpent. To allow for each and every individual to come through him to regain a relationship with Jesus Christ. I should say a relationship with God the Father through jesus christ notice with me in verse 5 of chapter 11 i love this but the lord came down to to the city and the tower which the sons of men had built in the hebrew it means that god had to stoop down so low to actually see this little pathetic thing and think of someone uh, not only stooping over to look at something but using a magnifying glass to do it This is your attempt to reach me. Really? Oh, is that so? You think that this is going to prevent me from judging again? You think that this is going to allow you to reign with me as God? And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they have one language And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over their face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore the name is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So God did not allow it to continue. Because God later would send one, him sacrifice for the entire world. He himself a sacrifice, the Bible tells us, in and through the person of Jesus Christ, let us understand that as we come to Gen- uh, Revelation chapter 17, God is now dealing with the world religions that believe and uh, tell the world that there is a way to God apart from Jesus Christ. Whatever that religion may be, many will lo- like to say to me, "Well, I believe all roads lead to God. I agree with that. And that might shock you. I agree that all roads lead to God, but only one road leads to heaven. And that road is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. G.K. Uh, Chesterton, he believed that individuals who thought they believed nothing were spared from the various aspects of the requirements of religion as he wrote he said this false religion might be very appealing to a wide swath of people but it is also deadly people think that when they do not believe in God they believe in nothing but the fact is they will believe in anything that is true In the tribulation period, this one world religion takes the form of the great prostitute draped in red. And that is what God is dealing with here as he deals with the great harlot sitting on the beast that arrives and is infecting the entire world with her spiritual fornication. This is heavy stuff. But I ask you a question, and I leave you with this. What more could God have done for us? What more could He have done? He sent Jesus to us. It wasn't man's attempt to reach God. So many believe that when they stand before God, when they stand before Jesus, the works of their life will be laid out, and as long as the pile of good works is higher than the pile of bad works, they will be ushered in to the kingdom of heaven. But here's the problem. The standard for heaven is perfection. And there's only one who was perfect. Recently, I was listening to an interview from Iowa And you may have seen it, Tucker Carlson grilling the GOP candidates. If you haven't seen it, please watch it. But later, he himself was interviewed. And he stated that for Lent, and okay, you know, he said, I'm going to read the Bible for myself. And one of the things that he realized by reading through the Bible is that everyone in the Bible was seriously flawed people. Can we say amen to that? Amen to that. God saves flawed people. But then he I went on to say, just you know, therefore uh, exalting the one who is perfect, Jesus himself. So when individuals tell me that they don't believe it's fair that God would hold the world accountable, let me ask you, what more could God have done on our behalf but to send Jesus for us? on our behalf. Every world religion promises something that they cannot deliver. And as a result, the people who follow these various religions are greatly deceived. For again, the Bible says that there's only one way to God, and that's through the person of Jesus Christ. Amen?